Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. It's not often we get bona fide political royalty on the podcast, but whatever your outlook, few people have bestrode British politics over the last few decades like Peter Mandelson. Mandelson's often credited as being the original spin doctor in the 1980s, but that rather glib epithet undersells his influence on the New Labour project, where he was integral to both Tony Blair's ascent to the leadership and the party's subsequent electoral success. He went on to serve in a number of cabinet roles and as a European commissioner, before returning to government under Gordon Brown as business secretary and president of the Board of Trade. Since 2010, he has been the chairman and was co-founder of the strategic consultancy Global Council. Earlier this week, Lord Mandelson was one of the panellists at the Margaret Thatcher Conference on Trade, hosted by CapEx's parent organisation, the Centre for Policy Studies. I caught up with him afterwards to talk trade, Brexit and how he sees his party's prospects under Keir Starmer. I began by asking Lord Mandelson where Brexit Britain's greatest opportunities are in trade and how we can gear up to make the most of them. Well, as it's uh, the Margaret Thatcher conference, um, I couldn't possibly overlook saying that the um, biggest, closest, most open, same standard market available to us, of course, still, is the European single market that you know, Mrs. Thatcher was instrumental in creating. Now, we've left the European Union, obviously, having spent, you know, half a century integrating ourselves to that uh, uh, market. Um, But the trade and cooperation agreement that we have between Britain now, the UK now, and the European Union is a dynamic one. And if we want to reopen the trade opportunities in Europe, uh, we can do so by negotiating down many of the barriers that we've deliberately put in place since we left the European uh, Union. Beyond Europe, uh, we can look uh, west uh, and east. If we look west towards the United States, where we already have a vast amount of transatlantic uh, trade and investment, uh, we can seek to grow that trade and grow that investment, but we will not have the benefit, in my view, of a new trade agreement between the United States and the UK. That door is closed to us uh, in the US, and I cannot see in the near future uh, any American administration uh, uh, forcing it open. Then there's East to Asia, and that is a, a collection, a huge collection of different sized countries and markets, some bigger than others, uh, some more pro-trade uh, 
than others. Some prepared to liberalize more uh, than, uh, uh, than others. And I think that uh, the Department for International Trade uh, uh, here in Britain has been right to prioritize the rolling over of the EU's agreements with such as Japan and South Korea and, uh, uh, and other countries, uh, which uh, we needed to have as, our, have as our base and are now, in a sense, looking fr from those agreements in Asia uh, to the springboard uh, of the revamped Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP, uh, that consists of 11 Asia-Pacific uh, countries. I think the government is right to make that a, a, a goal uh, of trade policy uh, here. We have to watch out uh, that we don't end up paying twice for the privilege of joining uh, the, uh, the CPTPP because we've already got bilateral agreements for which we have paid with a, you know, quite a number of its members, whether that be Japan or South Korea or Canada uh, or, or Mexico. But I think that it gives us an opportunity too to eke out advances and benefits in different sorts of trade, services, data, digital uh, trade, uh, for example, um, IPR, uh, intellectual property right uh, protections and consumer protections. I think we can do more if we're nimble in that negotiation, and that's what I believe the government is, is going to seek to do. Do you see particular sectors where the UK has a particular advantage? You spoke then about sort of digital and, and services rather than, say, traditional manufacturing. Yes, I don't rule out um, uh, manufacturing, particularly uh, as uh, new markets and supply chains uh, open up for us, for example, from the uh, energy uh, transition. Uh, we need to be market leaders in decarbonisation because that's going to open up all sorts of new uh, manufacturing and production opportunities, which you know, we will seek to export uh, as well. But services, yes, are going to remain very important uh, for us, uh, as will electronic uh, commerce and everything that depends on uh, the uh, safe and secure exchange of data between countries cross-border. Now, obviously, whenever you've, you've been in government yourself for many years, you have to deal with governments and people you might not always see completely eye-to-eye -eye on things. I mean, for instance, the Saudis, the Chinese, countries that don't have a democratic system. I mean, how important do you think it is that the UK pursues a kind of ethical trading policy or prioritises countries who share our values? Well, it, it's likely uh, that we're going to find it easier uh, to negotiate agreements um, with like-minded democracies. I mean, those, are, those that are not democratic, autocratic, tend to be uh, populist, nationalistic, uh, anti-foreign business uh, entities, and therefore, and more capricious, uh, 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 by the way, and arbitrary in the way in which they make and apply their policies. So they are not the easiest of uh, negotiating uh, partners for us. So I think we're m most likely to, to veer towards um, uh, other like-minded uh, market-based, more liberal democracies, uh, and alliances or coalitions of, of, of such countries. Um, th th then you come to China. Um, and, you know, China uh, uh, naturally excites a lot of uh, concern about human rights uh, in, in Britain and not just in the UK. 
Um, uh, th there, we cannot ignore how goods are produced uh, 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 in, 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 in some respects, and, uh, and we're not. But remember that we are constrained by WTO rules. I mean, the government is utterly committed to free, fair, rules-based uh, trade within the multilateral uh, uh, system. Uh, and uh, the sort of core platform or foundation of uh, the WTO and the rules-based system is that it operates a strict sort of non-discriminatory baseline of openness. So that you have to be careful that if we start discriminating against countries because we don't like some of their policies or human rights or whatever, uh, then we are liable, at least, to possible uh, a, a prosecution under the WTO rules. So we have to be slightly careful. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, obviously you would rather we were still in the EU. Um, that's not much of a secret to anybody. But how, how do you see the post-Brexit relationship with the European Union going now? I mean, I assume you're still in contact with plenty of people in Brussels and, and have an idea about how they feel towards us. Do you think we can get over the bad blood we see at the moment? In time, yes. In time, yeah. we've got to. We don't really have an alternative. We can't just sort of ostracise ourselves in our own neighbourhood. You know, we can't just sort of permanently exclude ourselves uh, from trade opportunities and privileges that we want to uh, have access to in the, you know, biggest market, five, 450-odd million uh, people in, in Europe, uh, the biggest, the closest, uh, the most open uh, uh, to us. So, you know, uh, over time, we are going to want inevitably, in my view, uh, uh, to, to row back on some of the trade barriers that uh, we've rather, I think, stubbornly, rather artificially created for ourselves on grounds of national uh, sovereignty. I think we should have been a bit more pragmatic, a bit more practical uh, uh, in our approach. Um, and I think that that will, therefore, over time, uh, serve us well if we were to mend fences and find a, a sort of a sensible partnership uh, and re-establish the mutual, uh, not just trade and economic benefits that exist uh, between us and our, and our neighbours, uh, but also the security, the intelligence sharing, I mean, all the other areas uh, of public policy, uh, where we would be mad uh, not to uh, want to create uh, you know, a sensible set of uh, partnerships in these key areas uh, with ourselves and our immediate neighbours uh, who, you know, who, who provide both the chance for us to combat better and collectively uh, the threats that are posed to us, but also to exploit the opportunities that are available to us in economic and trade terms. I wonder, um, just moving on from to the sort of domestic scene, the government's big domestic project, if you like, is levelling up, which is a slightly nebulous term. And we've had on the podcast, we've had um, Philip Collins before, who said, well, we tried something pretty similar when we were in government. I wonder what your reflections are on what the government is trying to do and how similar it is to Labour's own efforts to regenerate kind of post-industrial areas of the UK. Well, first of all, I think the government is right to set that as a key public policy objective. Um, uh, I think that the Prime Minister's commitment to and enthusiasm for levelling up uh, is welcome and admirable. It is 
a Labour agenda that is being followed uh, uh, here uh, by the last Blair and Brown uh, governments. But I would say without the structural and institutional underpinning, which I think is necessary and desirable for the, for the goal to be, to be realised. I mean, institutional and structural underpinning both in Whitehall, um, but, but also in the regions um, uh, 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 where it needs to be uh, successful. I mean, an enormous amount of money it is planned uh, to throw uh, at, uh, uh, at towns in, in the Midlands uh, and the North. But I would say without the institutional means uh, or uh, plan needed uh, to bring about what I think is indispensable, and that is a structural economic transformation uh, of, uh, of the northern part uh, of, of, of the country, without which we can make things look better uh, but without them actually being different. And I think that's going to be the test uh, for the government's uh, uh, levelling up strategy. Uh, is it, at the end of the day, going to throw an enormous amount of money from the centre, by the way, because it's the centre, uh, it's Whitehall knows best uh, in the system that the government is creating. They're not devolving uh, uh, power or responsibility or money-raising or local decision-making, which I think is wrong, because I think regions and towns and communities need to accept and embrace responsibility for their own futures and their own uh, welfares. But I think, secondly, um, th th there is a, there's a gap in the government's approach where an economic theory needs to be about how this economic transformation is going to take place. Because without that transformation, as I say, you, you can change how things look, but not necessarily how they are. In political terms, do you think you mentioned that you said that this is a Labour agenda? But this means that Labour itself has less sort of space to operate in. And um, where do you think they ought to be kind of pitching to the public, given that the government has what you what some people, even on the right, think is a sort of centre leftish um, economic agenda? I, I think the government, the, the Labour Party, uh, in, in in a very real sense. Uh, is going to have its approach uh, made more credible. It's going to be legitimised by what the government is saying and doing. Now, what Labour has to do, though, is to put in place uh, you know, the institutional machine, uh, means and machinery uh, and, and, and planning uh, that will serve these goals and make them more, give them a greater, more realistic chance of being achieved so the how i think is very important and not just what no not the weather uh and the if but the how and labor has got to step up with a much clearer uh, set of uh, policies practical policies which again set out the how uh, of achieving these goals uh, rather than just the sort of rhetorical aspiration uh, which uh, the, uh, uh, the present Prime Minister is very good at articulating with his famous boosterism, uh, uh, but which leaves something to be desired uh, uh, in policy areas which, frankly, require more focus, more detail, uh, more thrashing out of, uh, uh, of the mechanics, but also, as I say, that institutional underpinning uh, of what they're trying to uh, achieve and not simply a white horn knows best uh, attempt by ministers 
you know, located in uh, the levelling up department, um, just sort of pulling levers and pressing buttons and dispensing packages of money uh, to those parts of the country, those communities, or indeed those currently Tory-held constituencies that are get lucky enough to be the beneficiaries. Yeah, I, I wonder what your reflections are, having been involved in strategy while Labour in opposition as well. You mentioned coming up with more detailed policies. I mean, when do you think they ought to kind of bring those to the public to public attention, because if they bring them, if they bring them out too early, isn't there a risk I they think kind that's of a good get hammered? No, I think that's a good question. My, my, my approach would be to uh, uh, set out uh, direction, more uh, broad brushstrokes. Uh, we have to have an idea, a sense of what exactly the political economy is that Labour now believes in. I mean, uh, I think we had a fairly good idea of what New Labour's approach was. Uh, it, that then became, frankly, very confused and very uncertain uh, under Ed Miliband, who wanted to sort of repudiate New Labour without actually knowing what he wanted to put in its place. It then became clearer again under Jeremy Corbyn. I mean... Yeah, for better or worse. <laughs> uh, with, with, with the result that we drove away vast swathes of the electorate who didn't want to vote for us because they saw only too clearly uh, what his policies uh, were. Now, uh, what the Labour Party under Keir Starmer has to do is to come back, you know, onto the sort of centre-left political ground uh, and, uh, and be much clearer about the sort of political economy they want to see, the role of... Uh, uh, markets and the private sector in partnership with the state uh, and government. I think we have begun to see that, incidentally, in Keir Starmer's uh, speech to the uh, uh, CBI, um, uh, where uh, I think that uh, his approach, uh, uh, frankly, would have um, gained probably a little bit more support than the, uh, than the sort of pantomime performance that the Prime Minister put on uh, at, the, uh, at the CBI. But we're at the beginnings of this in, in Labour's case. We're in the foothills now. Uh, and frankly, I think that uh, Keir Starmer and his colleagues have just got to put on a little bit more speed, a bit more clarity, a bit more definition uh, about the direction that, that they want, to, want a lay, future Labour government to take, because it's not that far ahead uh, of the general election, uh, we're approaching a, a, a midpoint in this in this parliamentary uh, term. So, without setting out details and specifics at this stage, we do need more definition. We need more clarity. I mean, how do you think? And you've t kind of touched on it there uh, in part of your answer. But how does he marry that essential question that Labour faces, which is how do we come up with an offer that appeals to? our sort of metropolitan voters and the voters we want to either keep or win back in all those seats in the North, but, but the Midlands. Been, but and that's so been the coalition Labour's always won with. Mm -hmm. um, we, we won with that alliance, that nationwide coalition, if you like, of working class and middle class people, of northern constituencies uh, and southern. Uh, we did so again in 1964 and we did so again in 1997. You know, it's not rocket science, uh, nor in my view are the interests of working class and middle class people, those who live in the north or south, they're not opposites. You know, they are very, very uh, uh, similar. I mean, you know, what people want to see is a, a very strong government commitment to a 
growing economy where good, well-paid jobs are going to be created. Uh, they want uh, safety in the streets uh, and in their neighbourhoods, as well as security on our uh, borders. They want high-quality public uh, services, and they want to know that their children and their grandchildren are going to be able to get on in life and do even more than they had the chance to do when they were growing up. Now, that is what Labour's offer has got to be. How that, That's certainly the vision, and it's got to be supported by a workable programme, which I think, bit by bit, uh, Starmer and his colleagues now are putting in, uh, putting, uh, in, in place. But I know from my own um, uh, former constituency in Hartlepool uh, that, that what people want is a mixture of idealism and competence and affordability. That's what they want from Labour, and it's not uh, uh, different from what people uh, in London, Kent, and the South West want as well. My final question is it's just on this question of Labour's own sort of internal battles. I mean, how concerned are you that the kind of remnants of the Corbyn movement are, going to, are causing the party a kind of reputational problem? with certain voters, people keep popping up, especially on social media, and saying things that will put off a lot of the people that Labour needs to win over. The problem for us in the Labour Party is that there isn't a party to the left of us to which the Marxists, the Trotskyists, and the hard left would be revolutionaries can turn to instead. I mean, we are a broad coalition. Uh, as a party. R rather, I might say, as the Conservative Party is a broad uh, coalition. The Conservative Party now consists of, you know, both sort of internationalists and progressives and one-nation Tories, as well as populist nationalists uh, and, and, and the rest. Um, and uh, Boris Johnson's job is to get as many of them dancing together on the head of a pin as he can without toppling over. Well, what is true for the Conservatives is also true for Labour. We are, as I say, uh, coalitions. Uh, I, I make no secret of the fact that I think that the ability uh, of the hard left to inflict uh, real damage on the Labour Party, uh, as we've seen over very many decades, uh, is considerable, which is why I think Keir Starmer is right uh, to um, demand not just rule changes, but a change in the culture of the Labour Party that makes absolutely clear uh, that whilst the, uh, the core ministers, the hard left, um, yes, if they subscribe to our, uh, to our rules and our constitution can stay in the Labour Party, but are no longer in the driving seat of our party. That is the case now. It's going to remain the case. Uh, I firmly believe, uh, firmly believe, but I obviously have... You know, no, uh, you know, no doubts about the damage they can do us when they pop up, but we just got to make sure that the public see that they're not in control. That's all from me this week. But before I go, I just wanted to let you know about a live in-person event that's happening next Wednesday with the broadcaster, writer and commentator Ian Dale, who will be discussing his new book, The President, which is an anthology of all 46 men who have graced the White House. The event's at 530 next Wednesday, December the 1st, at our Westminster offices. And you can find ticketing details on the website, on our Twitter feed, and in this week's editions of the CapEx newsletter. And if you're not a subscriber to that, just go to www.capex.co forward slash subscribe. Hopefully I'll see you there. Bye for now.
the number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.